Okay, we're, we are recording. Uh, here we have another episode with Hassan. Hassan, can you please introduce yourself? Hey everyone, my name is Hassan. I'm, a, I'm an editor at the People's Anti-Colonial Press. Um, I'm a scientist um, and I'm here to talk about the role of American patriotism in U.S. organizing. Thank you. Uh, can you talk about why we're talking about this today? Right, so recently, um, at least on Twitter, this debate kind of uh, came back up to the surface. Now, I don't want to make, you know, like a Twitter debate into, into something important, but what underlies the Twitter debate, some kind of the longer standing questions that are coming up around the debate are questions that have existed um, in the background of American socialist organizing um, for a long time. So I, I think it's important to kind of dissect what lies beneath the question of American patriotism and, and, and understand what the deeper questions are. But I guess the debate uh, started when someone on Twitter was said something like, quote unquote, I, I'm a Marxist-Leninist, I'm an anti-imperialist, I'm an American patriot. Right now, of course, anyone who's against US imperialism just heard that it was like, what the hell are you talking about, dude? How can you be an American patriot? and be uh, anti-imperialist. And, you know, and that's a gut reaction that any sensible person who, who's against the US empire will have. Um, you know, but we're Marxists and our arguments are not centered around emotion. So you know, to me, that's not a, a real kind of argument. Um, the other problem with that kind of gut reaction, negative response to the question of patriotism is that those who promote the idea of patriotism and those who support the idea of American patriotism, like, look at this. And they're like, oh, see, these, um, these, these communists are acting like babies. They're falling into their emotions. Um, people around the world have used patriotism for their own, own revolutionary purposes. Yeah, but I want to talk about how that's also not an argument either. Um, so on the surface level, there's this question of, all right, is like, what is the role of American patriotism? Is it good? Can it be used as a weapon for positive organizing? But really, um, how does American patriotism apply to um, the black proletariat, for example, or the relationship of the white proletariat to settler colonialism? Or an even bigger question is, um, like, what is the role of the proletariat within the US empire in the context of international revolution period, right? So these are like more deeper questions that kind of naturally come up when you're, when you're talking about American patriotism. So these are, these are some of the things I wanna, I wanna talk about, but ha have you seen like this debate? Like what are your thoughts on this debate? Yeah, so I, I saw it on, um, on Twitter and I saw the Luna Oi on, her, on their, um, Twitter and on their YouTube channel brought up like how um, third world patriotism is different from a, you know, an identity like settler colonial patriotism, sorry. And um, I, I, agree, I agree to that point. I mean, I mean, like when you, once you're, if you're fighting against, you know, colonization, you know, capitalism, um, I guess patriotism is good, you know, um, but, you know, I mean, can you define patriotism? Is it the same as nationalism? It's not, you know what I'm saying? Like, is it, is it not? I don't know. Like, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question to start with. Um, so patriotism is really 
just the love for uh, one's country. But <clears throat> I don't think we should rely on, you know, like a dictionary definition of the word patriotism. What we really have to look at is how the ruling class of the US have used and weaponized the idea of patriotism to form a wider ideology to get the US working class to end up supporting racism, you know, uh, uh, imperialist wars, uh, to have them kind of erase settler colonialism from their heads. Like this is a function of patriotism uh, right now. Um, and, you know, Luna Oye makes a great point that the patriotism of the third world is different than of the US empire. So uh, th those, like these white socialists who support the idea of using American patriotism in, in, in American organizing, they always make the point that uh, Latin American countries, they, their campaigns, like for example, of Castillo or Evo or Maduro, they all use patriotism and it, and it works successfully. Um, they quote Mao for, as someone who supports uh, patriotism. Um, and so they, they think that, you know, this also applies in the US, meaning um, you can kind of use the fact that Americans love their country and like use that as a point of organizing to say, hey, um, if you're an American patriot, you care about this country, so you should want to improve it and socialism is a way to improve it. But, you know, like Luna always says, uh, the context of patriotism is applied differently in the third world than it is in the US empire. And secondly, um, we're not postmodernists. Um, if, if American patriotism has a tie to ruling class ideology, that means it has some kind of connection to the material basis of production. And we're not postmodernists. We, we, we don't just change the meaning of a word on a whim, um, on, on a mass ideological level without actual fundamental changes in means of production. So, I mean, that, that's one thing that's not gonna happen. And second, when Mao talks about patriotism, um, he's really talking about fomenting uh, nationalism in, in the anti-colonial context against, against empire. And, and I could give you the example of Palestine. Um, I think nationalism and patriotism has a very strong effect in Palestine because it, it reinvigorates the identity of a nation across the various ethnic groups and religions and cultures within of, of Palestinian people. It unites them under one banner. It kind of promotes this idea that they are a people and they deserve sovereignty. So patriotism like in the anti-colonial setting specifically has a, has a long purpose and it has a historical success. Um, and, and that kind of patriotism, that kind of anti-colonial struggle against an empire also is naturally linked to internationalism, right? Like those two are one and the same. And this is what Mao says. But these American patriot supporters, they keep like referencing Mao out of context and saying, oh, Mao's a patriot, Mao supported patriotism. So we should also be patriots. But all right, sure, that's the case. Um, so then how does patriotism apply to other oppressed colonized groups within the US, meaning the black proletariat who are descendants of Africans and how does it relate to uh, settler colonialism? The argument that they'll give is that, uh, well, um, the majority of Americans support patriotism. So this is why we should use it. And that's kind of a very insidu insidious thing because really what they're trying to do is like in their idea of revolution, they want to take the black proletariat and, and take the indigenous peoples and kind of integrate them into the nationalism and patriotism of the US. 
Okay, we're back. We had uh, headphone problems. Um, and uh, okay, so what, what Hassan was saying um, brings me to an article called, and I reference it a lot, it's called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor by Tuckin Yang. And in that article, there's a term colonial equivocation where, you know, like, you know, white socialists would say stuff, stuff, stuff like, hey, we're all colonized, you know, um, but, you know, these people, these white socialists don't see the relationship or the, the types, you know, the different relationships between different groups of people like Black and Indigenous or other people, even themselves, and how, it, you know, their relationship with colonization differs from the other groups, you know? I mean, it's easy to say that they're colonized and they want to put everybody under one banner, but there's no one size fits all. So I think colonial equivocation colonial is a good good term for this, you know? Yeah, so I, I think this is a, a longstanding trait of, of American socialists. This is why a lot of American socialists tend to be against existing socialist states um, so, or, or even any kind of anti-colonial movement, because in their heads, um, let, me, let, me, let me use the example of, of China, for example, um, they, went, they underwent a socialist revolution and they had to deal with the problems of imperialism in their own way to maintain uh, their own national sovereignty. So now, the, now American socialists will be like, oh, they're, they're, they're oppressed because they're under the rule of of, uh, of authoritarianism. Um, so, and, and, this is, and this is kind of the same logic. They don't see what the primary enemy of the world is. They, they kind of see everyone is the victim of, like everyone in the world is, is an equal victim. Um, and that obscures uh, the actual contradictions that are, that are at play in, in the world right now. Um, and I wanna kind of talk about these contradictions because you know, as a Marxist, we, we want to understand the world holistically, materially, and through, and through, the, like the, and through dialectical materialism, right? And, and, and that is understanding the world through contradictions. So I, I just want to start by kind of talking about uh, the like what Marxists call the principal contradiction. And what that means, like that term principal contradiction, is the struggle that exists in the world that affects all other struggles. For example, um, during World War II, the principal contradiction was between the Allied powers and Axis powers. Like that's like the war between those two powers affected everything else. Like, um, if like for example, if there was a socialist struggle like happening, I don't know, in Japan or something, or or or, or in Africa, like even that struggle is going to be affected by this greater world war that's happening because it affects like the rest of the world. Um, when World War II ended and the U.S. ended up becoming the kind of capitalist hegemon and the Soviet Union emerged as like the hegemonic uh, socialist counterpower to U.S. imperialism, the new, the new principal contradiction became, was between the U.S. And, and Soviet Union, right? And like that kind of Cold War that was brewing affected the rest of the world. It affected decolonial movements because even decolonial movements around the world um, we're kind of stuck between these uh, these uh, fighting hegemons, the um, Soviet Union and U.S. imperialism. So, what is it? What is the principal contradiction today? What is affecting all other contradictions today? Um, today, it's between um, it, it, it's still between nation states, but rather than it being between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, now it's kind of between 
the imperialist bloc, which is led by the US and includes Europe and Japan uh, and consumer states like Australia or, or Scandinavia, for example, against uh, the global South, um, like all nations of the global South who are struggling, who, who are struggling to be politically independent, but still are tied economically to like the world imperialist system. Now this struggle affects everything else. So like if, if the US maintains power over the struggle, it means they maintain a strong economy. Um, and so, so you can see how that has an effect inside secondary contradictions. Now, what are some secondary contradictions? One is like this um, racial struggle between uh, white people and black people in the US. Another contradiction is the contradiction of settler colonialism, like the ongoing settler colonialism that exists inside the United States, where border towns are kind of the front lines of this, where uh, indigenous nations are still fighting against uh, appropriation of their lands uh, against these transnational corporations, right? for example, with line three. Um, another major contradiction is between like the neoliberals um, and the welfare state or, or like the national state, meaning um, Capitalists want to make as much money as they can, but at the same time, they know that if they exploit workers too much within their own country, um, there's going to be a rebellion. So they have to also offer some kind of concession. So there's also that contradiction going on. So basically, the U.S.'s dominance over the third world maintains its power internally. And at the same time, internal stability inside the U.S. helps maintain the U.S. dominance over the rest of the world. Um, and, and as another example, if, if there was a socialist revolution or, or some kind of like internal problem inside the US for the ruling class, they would weaken their global stance, right? Because they would be very distracted inside. They would have to pour resources in, internally and that can make revolution for the third world easier. And similarly, if the third world was going through a revolutionary struggle and like breaking their economies off of the US, it would weaken the US like it would weaken the global economy at, as a whole, probably um, create more problems internally for, for the working class. And then that would uh, lead to more struggles internally. So you see how like all of these connections, all of these various struggles that exist are connected to each other, but they're primary, primarily based on this principal contradiction between US imperialism and the global South. Okay, so now that I've kind of set this larger picture about the global contradictions, um, we need to talk about, you know, we have to talk about more deeply about these internal contradictions. Um, so, you know, like, like you said, you can't, you can't integrate all the various class relationships inside the US into one group, which is like an, a colonized group against US imperialism, because US imperialism um, relies on internal stability within the U.S. And how is this internal stability created? It's created by a class alliance between the imperialists, um, some of the lower level bourgeoisie of the U.S., and many segments of the American working class. And the class alliance takes the form of massive labor concessions. So Amer American workers make way more money than the global south in terms of um, value production and and uh, second, um, women in the, in, in, the, in the imperialist core, they get a lot more room to operate and a lot more uh, upward social mobility than women in the global south. And that, I think this is like a, a key 
um, difference that people tend to overlook. Like this is like a, a major concession granted. You know, another easy example is that like child labor is banned here while child labor is allowed in, in many parts of the third world. And, and the transnational companies who are based in the US like use child labor abroad. So you can see how, you know, uh, American workers are given many concessions compared to the global South. Um, so, and, and this is a, like the foundation of this alliance. Now, if the global South were to de-link from the US, um, all of that labor would have to go back onto American workers. And, and this is how like instability, instability can be created. But of course you can't just rely on the you know, global South. You also have to work internally. Now, these labor concessions that are given to American workers, they aren't equally given, obviously. They're given firstly to the white settler class and descendants of settlers and like certain nationalities of immigrants who are like welcomed and allowed, you know, like Italian, Irish, uh, to an extent Indian or Japanese workers are like welcomed uh, into the US and integrated. While the black proletariat tend to get uh, the least amount of these concessions or the indigenous population get the least amount of these concessions. So, you know, the point is to not differentiate the different kinds of workers inside the U.S. based on race, simply because you think white workers are bad and black workers are good. For example, that's not, that's not the case here. There are real material conditions that differentiate these, differentiate these kinds of workers through the class alliances that get built up uh, across them. Um, okay, so... Next thing I want to talk about is, you know, how do we analyze uh, the black worker and like, and why is it, and why is the revolutionary Marxist position of the black worker like in contradiction with this idea of American patriotism, where all workers are equally exploited. Um, so I, the most advanced revolutionaries from this continent, in my opinion, who would be Kwame Ture and Huey Newton, like they all they organized around the basis of black nationalism, meaning that um, African people that exist inside the US, they are their own nation and they should have the sovereignty to uh, fight for their own liberation um, and, and self-determine themselves basically, right? So this is kind of framing the, the black proletariat through an anti-colonial lens against uh, the US empire. And of course, I don't have to explain how that concept also applies to indigenous nations. Um, we have to recognize uh, the indigenous people in the U.S. as their own nations, and the similar process uh, applies to them. But this is not something that the American settler socialists kind of want to admit or, or look to, because in the, one, they become the enemy, and second, um, like, what does it mean for them when it comes to, to, to revolution? Like, they're fighting for their own, they're fighting to end their own exploitation, but at the same time, there are other groups of people who are going to be fighting against them for their own to liberate themselves from their own exploitation. Um, and this kind of like internal division is not uh, a new thing. And Marxists historically ha have like used it to their own advantage. Um, and China is a great example of this. Um, so Mao had this theory called Uncircled the Cities where um, they're, they're reactionary KMT um, the industrial city workers had met, had a lot of motive to ally with the with the reactionaries, because the reactionaries want to develop a bourgeois capitalist state, 
and bring you know more jobs for for the industrial workers. Um, so of course the Chinese communists saw the rural peasant masses as the primary revolutionary class, and this is different than like Russia where the conditions were different. Now the idea was to organize the rural peasantry and quote unquote have them encircle the cities, right? Um, so so you see how you know it's not. Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a new thing for communists to focus on one segment of the working class to exploit the contradictions that exist and then gain victory uh, for themselves. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, that concept needs to be copy pasted to America where uh, the black proletariat indigenous nations need to, I don't know, surround like white cities. Like that's, that's not the point um, because, you know, we're not dogmatic. We don't copy paste methods, but really what the point is, if you want to, create instability for U.S. imperialism, which is the prime, which is a principal contradiction, which is affecting all other revolutionary movements across the world. Um, you know, it, it, I think it's up to the uh, American worker to one, support and foment like the idea of indigenous and black nationalism and movements for their own sovereignty, right? Even something as simple as uh, like white workers going to support line three, um, would bring victory to the indigenous movement and can foster and foment even a stronger sense of sovereignty. And the stronger sense of sovereignty that you get in within the black proletariat and indigenous uh, proletariat, um, the weaker US imperialism gets, um, right? Like, I think the toughest, one of the toughest moments internally for US imperialism was uh, the black liberation struggle that was going on in the 60s and 70s, which is why those leaders were all, you know, taken out so systematically, right? And you can even consider AIM, the American Indian Movement, something that was like similar to that. And, you know, when the, when black and indigenous nationalism is fomented and like promoted, a tie is made between them and the global South, meaning that they are all, you know, nations who are uh, fighting for their national sovereignty against US imperialism. But the idea of like integrating all of them into American patriotism does the exact opposite. It dampens that contradiction, which is a benefit for the ruling class. It, it kind of like, like that's so like I was saying, like if that contradiction, if that contradiction is exaggerated, it's, it, weakens US, the, the, it weakens US imperialism. But if somehow these groups who are in you know, contradiction with the white working class, if they are um, like united with them, then you then you dampen the contradiction. I have a question, real quick. Yeah, sorry, I, I went on for so. No, that's okay. And I I put on the chat, you know, I have a question. I didn't want to cut you off, you know, verbally, because um, I, I was agreeing to, you know, um, what you were saying. So I, I, I do agree that solidarity is, is a must when it comes to, you know, the white working class, you know, with Native people, you know, and, and Black workers and Native workers, I think, because, you know, I, I think the struggle for a lot of Native people are, you know, having non-Natives understand our issues, our struggles, you know, and I think solidarity is understanding that so my question is you know when this person said you know i'm an american patriot and i'm a socialist communist whatever like do you think 
where do you think that comes out of like like dogmatic socialists or is that something else do you think or just ignorance of other people's struggles that that is a good question first of all the person who like said that and started this whole debate first of all he was like a burning supporter like yesterday so uh you know i don't even trust uh, to me this person is like functioning as an odd but you know there are other more long-standing communists who who went in, who went on to support him and that's a good question and that kind of leads me into the history of this um you know american socialist organizing has exist, has existed in the in the us for for a pretty long time um and they've grappled with this question since the beginning um so so i, I kind of want to give you so i'm drawing for i'm drawing from robin dg kelly's book freedom dreams and like when i'm talking about some of this history so the socialist labor party was established in 1876 uh in the us and their kind of primary goal was to quell the white working classes perceived competition with the newly liberated black uh proletariat right like they were slaves and now they were liberated now they're proletariat and now white working class i kind of felt that that they had, that there were competition and this is because of uh like ruling class ideology that fomented the racism, right? Uh, so this was like the primary goal for the Socialist Labor, Labor Party. Um, however, like they didn't understand this contradiction to be an important one. For example, Daniel De Leon, one of the leaders uh, of this party and also the co-founder of the Industrial Workers of the World, he, he wrote that there is no such thing as a race or Negro question. There is only a social a labor question so as far as the socialist and labor movements were concerned so basically he's saying like yeah the race question is not, not a big thing uh really it's a question of pure class and labor and the fact that these these two workers are divided against each other so that was like the position of like the original segments of um uh, of uh socialist organizing then in 1901 the socialist party of america they were backed by the second international and they also held, held the same position uh, on, on, on this. So it wasn't until the following decade, like over like the backdrop of the Bolshevik revolution and the development of the theory of imperialism as a higher stage of capitalism, did black thought sharpen thanks to some of the direction by black socialists such as W.E.B. Du Bois, Hubert Harrison, Claude McKay. Um, for example, Du Bois centered the black proletariat as central to the success of socialism in the United States, which is very different than like how the American socialists were seeing it. Um, but the interesting thing is that these black socialists um, were fully backed by the Communist International and were welcomed by them to speak and like almost like treated like celebrities. Um, it, so even Lenin on Lenin on his. So by the way, so I just want to say like the American socialists never gave them room. They were just like, oh yeah, this is not a race question, you know, organized with us, not against us. <clears throat> but Lenin, he, the other way, uh, in his uh, thesis on the national and colonial question, uh, where he, so he, in this article, he wrote that uh, communists around the world should support anti-colonial struggles. And he named some of them. For example, he named Ireland, he named uh, China. Um, but then he also named, quote unquote, American Negroes and colonies. Like he considered those two groups to be like national liberation struggles that American communists should like agree. And this like really 
the, the American Communists are called shit, like what the fuck? Like we never analyzed it this way. Um, so the workers, the Workers' Party of America, which is now considered the Communist Party of America, there was a name change. So like they also held the view that quote unquote, uh, the interests of the Negro worker are identical to those of the white, right? Like even they were in opposition to like Lenin's position, and black socialists, they did they like were kind of stuck in the shadows of of American communists here for a very long time until like Lenin and the Communist International like welcomed them, gave them room to speak, celebrated them, published their works and kind of promoted their struggles as a national liberation struggle. Do you, um, when, when did that change within the communist party? Do you feel, or did it change or do you feel they still have work to do? In the U.S., so I don't think the fundamental position changed for them. Um, I think at the backdrop of the uh, black liberation struggles in the sixties and seventies, they really had to, they really had to follow suit. And uh, around that time, they focused on black recruitment. I mean, they've, they've always had black members in their party, and they they always cite them to kind of prove that oh yeah, our position is correct. We have black members, um, but like. Black members inside CPUSA understood the world differently than their counterparts in Black liberation movements. For example, the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army, um, even like groups like the Nation of Islam, like all these, all these different Black groups like understood themselves as, as their own nation. Um, because remember, they're, um, they're, they're from Africa. And, and, and for Kwame Ture, this was the basis of Pan-Africanism. So like Kwame Ture posited that um, the Black liberation struggle in the US is tied to Pan-Africanism because the Black people here are Africans, right? And this is just like another new colony nation that exists. So like their national struggle should be linked with the wider national struggle of Pan-Africanism. And this is in complete like contradiction to the idea of American patriotism where, or, or the organizing of CPUSA, where they're like, oh, black workers should unite with white workers to establish socialism in the US. But you see how like the idea of Pan-Africanism is pulling the black proletariat back to Africa and tying them back to their own nation while uh, CPUSA organizing is like trying to further steal the African people and integrate them into their own like colonial project to establish socialism here. Similar things happened in um, socialist organizing in Israel. Like the, the Communist Party of Israel, um, their idea was that they need to make peace with the Palestinians and then, and then like unite with them to create socialism in Israel, right? Um, it's almost like a weird blend of a two-state solution and a one-state solution, but the one-state solution is Israel, not Palestine, right? Like, really what a communist support should support is the national liberation of, of people. So the national liberation of Palestinians, socialists or not, like Hamas doesn't need to be socialist for, um, for communists to support them and say, hey, they're fighting for Palestinians' national liberation. Um, even indigenous people here, like for example, um, the Shinnecock Nation in, in Long Island, they wanted to uh, build a casino and the, like, the local, like settler governments kept like shutting down their moves about the casino, but the communists communist should still support that nation's autonomy 
and their right to develop the casino if they want to. Like, yeah, we can be communists and say, oh, casinos are bad. It's a capitalist thing. But one, for them, it's, it's kind of establishing a means of production. It's, it's trying to establish their own economic sovereignty, one. And second, like, who are we to tell them how to do things, right? Same thing with Palestinians. Like, we, we do not have to wait for Palestinians to be in a full socialist movement before we support them. Like, we should support their national sovereignty no matter what. And the same applies to Black liberation movements. Um, we like the, So we had communist Black liberation movements like the Black Panthers, right? But we also had non-communist Black liberation movements, like, like the Nation of Islam. And it's like the American communists have always seen these, these, these groups to be um, in opposition with a socialist movement in the US. Like they see them as, so here's a quote from CPUSA. Um, they said that black, black nationalism was a weapon of reaction for the defeat and further enslavement of both blacks and their white brother workers. They're basically saying that in fighting for national liberation, you're like making things worse for us, right? Which is true, right? Um, black liberation um, weakens U.S. imperialism and th thus does make it worse for like the white worker. But um, in making it worse, what does like the word worse means? That worse kind of means that the U.S. imperialists will be kind of forced to uh, change the alliance that they currently have with the American working class. And that change could, you know, could mean like, uh, more concessions, right, through like, like improving things or worsening of things, but like, like a move into fascism. But the point is like uh, the Black liberation movement or indigenous liberation movement can affect like a change onto the principal contradiction of US imperialism. And in that change, um, you know, it can make a, a socialist liberation movement inside the U.S. more possible. Um, but more importantly, it makes the liberation movements in the global South more possible because more instability inside the U.S. means more room to operate in the in the global in in, in the in the global South, for example. You know, like for example, if if one day if Israeli workers went on a general strike against their own capitalists which they won't, by the way, right, because they're in alliance with their capitalists right now on the basis of settler colonialism. But if they went on a strike against their own capitalists, that would make the National Liberation Movement project of Palestinians way easier because not only will Israel have to deal with an outside enemy, they'll have to deal with an inside enemy, right? And, and, and this is a point. You, we want to encourage points of weakness inside, uh, inside the U.S. in order to make uh, the global south's own movement stronger because that also in turn helps our own movements internally, right? Like they're they're both connected. Hope that makes sense. It does. I have a quick comment, I guess. Yeah. Um, so going back, like, there's two things you said that um, I talked about on this podcast before. The first one is um, could white socialists be colonizers? Right. And I've, you know, I've joined, you know, going back most of my life, you know, I've joined socialist organizations like PSL, Communist Party USA, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And they were always ran by white men, you know, and whenever I spoke about, you know, tribal sovereignty and, you know, decolonization, they would say things that to me were racist. 
right? right? Uh, Sometimes some of them even were like, we were like debate these things and at the end of the debates, they would say stuff, something like, oh, here, I'll let you have this one. I'm going to put a feather on your bonnet, mm-hmm. you know? And th- to me, that's racist. And I would tell everybody, right. hey, man, this is, this is racism. And they'll be like, other white people will say, hey, I don't see this as racism. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you see. Is it, it matters right. what I'm telling you, you know? So mm-hmm. um, I actually like questioned if I was even a, a communist or socialist because mm-hmm. um, of my experiences with these white organizations, you know, and, and, and their treatment to, um, to you know like decolonial projects for one one example is i i i you know i, I would talk about decolonization and what it would look like and they all would have the same answer communism or socialism whatever mm-hmm. but i would say what's the role of native people and in, in, uh-huh. in, you know in, in your vision mm-hmm. of after the revolution they will always say oh they can stay autonomous but but what does that mean right yeah they always say that but what does it mean what does that mean like so you yeah. guys can get to control the continent and we get to have our autonomy at the same time they will talk shit about native people native you know government and native communities having casinos mm-hmm. right and they would talk about going after the revolution going to these communities and like abolishing casinos and i would be like whoa like right. who that are sounds you? like colonialism right yeah i was like who are you to tell native people Mm-hmm. how to run things you know and you know there's debates with the native people themselves you know about the pros and cons of casinos and blah 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 you know and but you know i always tell people you know i and i give the imagination as an example we have casinos we have a water park we have you know smoke shops and a bunch of other businesses like a bunch of them and no one comanche owns it it's mm-hmm. owned by the whole tribe Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and we get to you know go in and tell the government hey we don't like this at the end of the year or you know at the, uh, in november we all get like uh like a, a you know like a per cap for uh the casino money a certain percent of casino money everybody gets equal amount you know mm-hmm. people in government don't get more than others you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. yeah at the same time these businesses help fund programs like daycare for education for mold removal on your house to build the tornado shelter we have mm-hmm. over 100 programs the tribal members could could uh you know use just you know just in our tribe so you know it's um it's how can white people tell tell me how to you know run these these things for you know to, or to run our programs or any, anything like that to me i i was very skeptical until I met, you know, you guys, you know, uh, you and Marley and, and, you know, you know, all these other people that I met, I was like, then, you know, I was like, thank God, you know, I met this community of, uh, you know, like decolonial people that understand this thing. So I, I, you know, like, I feel like it's, it's not easy for sometimes for native people. Uh, I can't speak for black people because I'm not black, but for native people, you know, to sometimes join these organizations and have these organizations sometimes tokenize, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these members like, hey, but I, that happened to me too. Like, hey, you know, so-and-so agrees with me and they're native too. Like, what? Yeah, right, right, it's right. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine if, can you imagine if the Soviet Union 
invaded China because China opened up their economy just on the basis of like, oh, you guys are capitalists, we're going to invade you. Like, and this is like the idea that like these socialists are like promoting, like when they say that they want to go abolish the casinos and indigenous nations. Um, but you see how sometimes um, playing the more the capitalism mode of production with like strict control over it can help to help can help develop your 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 nation, right? And this is this is what China does, and this is what many indigenous nations are doing with like by using casinos or creating hemp farms. Like they use the capitalist mode of production and then they reap the profits of it, of it to reinvest in, into their own communities. Um, of course, like this, can, this process doesn't mean it's like a pure process, but it, it's up to them to implement it, right? And I, like, again, I wanna reiterate this quote because like from CPUSA, like if you really think about it, it's a really racist thing. So again, they say black nationalism was a weapon of reaction for the defeat and further enslavement of both blacks and their white work and their white brother workers. So again, like they're saying like black nationalism is bad for black people, right? And, and this is the idea that they think. And they, they always bring up this idea, like Caleb Malpin says this all the time. You know, I, I like the guy, sure, but like he, he has a very bad position on this. And he always says like, yeah, uh, like on the question of uh, the black military and indigenous nations, he always say like, oh, they will have their own autonomy and you know they will have their own self-determination but what like like you said what does that mean when lenin when lenin like wrote about self-determination of nations uh, for example in the context of so of, of the soviet union he was saying that they should have the right to secede shouldn't be encouraged but they have the right they have the right to secede right but when lenin wrote about this in the context of russia it's very different because um there is like a national sense of identity that has ties across like that wider region, right? Which kind of led to the greater Soviet Union or even in China, like the 52 or 53 different ethnic groups that exist in China, um, they all have a, a national identity of Chinese that has long, like very, very long, centuries long historical ties. Um, the black proletariat and indigenous nations do not have this at all. The black proletariat are Africans inside the U U.S. who were brought here against the world, and now we have their descendants. The, um, the indigenous nations are are in ongoing conflict with the U.S. Like people think that this conflict ended, right? But not only is there a conflict across the continental, like U.S., but even think about Hawaii, where there's like where there is ongoing like contention for for land. Um, so you know these groups are in opposing. Are, 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 are in opposition to the white sellers. Um, and um, another weird, annoying thing that they do is they'll, like, if you use the word settler, they'll show you a photo of a white homeless person and they're like, oh, is this a seller? I'm like, yeah, I mean, he is. Like, he's, he's exploited. Doesn't mean, like, just because, like, he's still exploiting, or, or, or I mean, is exploited by other people doesn't mean he still isn't a seller, right? Um, and besides that, like, this the settler you know as a concept is not represented by the white homeless man it's represented by the white bourgeoisie and the white professional class you know who many of them own financial capital and you know and what is a ruling power over the world right now is financial capital right um there's one more thing i wanted to say i i, I always find that these these pro-patriot people take really 
like I, I always see the racism in them. And I, I want to give the example of how, like even on Twitter, they'll ignore like the Pan-Africanists who are arguing against them or, or indigenous people are arguing against them. They'll ignore all of them. They may even block some of them, but then they'll find like some liberal, like angsty new socialist who's like, oh, fuck you, it's imperialism. And they'll like respond to them only. And say like, oh, this person is immature. They don't get the you know deeper the, the deeper concept of this. And even like Caleb Malpin, again, like I, I said, I like the guy. Like he went on Facebook and was like, oh, the people who who disagree with me on American patriotism, they're all against black nationalism and they're all against existing socialist states. I'm like, no, I don't think that's the case. Maybe if you're picking and choosing the people to argue with, that may be the case. But there's, a, I mean, I've been seeing a lot of Pan Africanists calling this patriotism out and I remember where this one popular account like kind of brought, brought up this idea in the past he went and blocked all indigenous communists who were like arguing against him right like these arguments exist um and and these arguments have a strong like material basis like you know like I I, I hope I set forth like a strong one with the ideas of contradictions but like they ignore that they don't even think about these things they kind of like perpetuate the culture war that the ruling class has created. And, and they, they tend to analyze these questions through just race only. And then they say like, oh, you know, race is a social construct, all the workers are, are, are equal. But they're still like, if you, you know, if you think about it like that, they're still looking at the question through race, even if they're disregarding race. Because like to disregard race, you have to look at race first, right? But the question isn't about race, right? It's a deeper question. It's about anti-colonial struggle. Africans in the U.S. are not Americans, and you know, like this has to be reminded. And this was the basis of Black nationalist organizing. Um, and, and this is the whole purpose of diversity and inclusion, by the way, right? Like they saw that the, the nationalism was such a strong thing, so then they started integrating like popular individuals into the colonial system through diversity and inclusion. Um, it's it's like a counter to to what the Black nationalists were doing, and um, like the American patriotism thing is also diversity and inclusion. It's like, yeah, we're going to include you into our patriotism. Like the ruling class's patriotism excluded you, but our socialist patriotism is going to include you. But, you know, we need to do the opposite rather than like, like coercing and manipulating colonized people into the American colonial project. We need to like foment the division and, you know, foment instability and, and, and foment national, national liberation struggle and self-determination. And because, you know, if, if they were to integrate into a United Socialist Movement, which, which first of all, is obviously impossible, um, they're not gonna be centered, right? like, like you said. Like, if, if, the, if, like if, if you see how racists acted with you, like, can you imagine how racist they would act if the um, average, you know, working class person of those groups joined in ranks with them who may not be like well read on socialism in the past right oh sorry yes i agree and that's the thing you know with uh so i do want to have some some comments you know that's the thing with white socialists and this you know this whole thing is not a white socialist bashing it's mm -hmm. also an experience you know these are what we're what we are experiencing you know, as as socialists, as you know, people of color, as you know, as indigenous, as black, you know. So I think, um, you know, I, I noticed that you know a lot of these you know white socialists that kind of pushed aside 
um, you know, uh, you know, decolonial movements are very like articulate when it comes to uh, you know the knowledge they have about socialism, the history. They're able to quote like real quick. Right, you know, right. and anybody listening to to these people are like, yeah, this person's really good. You mm -hmm. know, this person, I, I really like this person. But you know, we, once you know these people are. You know, because these people are so articulate, like, you know, uh, with an untrained ear, you know, you or I, you, 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 you kind of miss, you know, criticisms that should that should be there. Mm -hmm. Right. I mm -hmm. think that's why a lot of, you know, Caleb, you know, is the, the, the way he is. He's really good at what he does. Yeah, right? he knows a lot of history, but I don't yeah. know that much theory. In my yeah, and, and I think, I think you know, and I, I don't dislike the guy, you know, but, you know, he does bash a lot about like, I, I even had um, uh, Nick Estes on this show and Caleb always bashes Russell Means and, you know, how Russell Means supported, um, uh, almost, I don't know what, but, you know, the stuff he did in Tent to America. Right, and right. yeah, and, you know, and- And, and being anti-communist in general. Yeah, and be, be, yeah, being anti-communist. Nick came on the show and talked about that, that claim right. and how even that view is, 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 you know, claiming that Russell was fucked up. It was wrong or, you know, mm -hmm. you know, it, you know, you really have to analyze in a different way. And I think, you know, um, but, you know, these people like, 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 like Caleb, you know, it, to me, they're scary because they, they, they get the people to follow them and, you know, and then they totally disregard, disregard the decolonial movements. This is not a Caleb bashing either, okay? Right, like, right. I, I, you know, everybody evolves. And I think, you know, what we want is solidarity with white socialists to understand our struggles. We are not going to just assimilate into a, a, a white socialist idea of revolution or, you know, or decolonization. We have our own, you know what I'm saying? And right. keep, keep going. Thank you. Well, well I was going to say, like, first of all, it's beyond white socialism. It's like specifically American white. Right, like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with like white socialists, but like the American whites, like the Israelis, like they, like their idea of socialism is war. But I, I want to talk about um, like military recruiting. I don't know if you can like talk about this, but in my view, like the U.S. military focuses on recruiting an indigenous nation so so much because it foments the idea of American patriotism, and like it does what I was saying before. Rather than antagonizing that internal contradiction, it dampens it rather than like fomenting nationalism and some like ideas of sovereignty indigenous nations they like try to integrate them into the military and by doing that like the families of the of the of the people who serve the uh, US military members of the US military they end up like having the strong sense of allegiance to um, american patriotism and right and, the, and an example of that is like deb holland like she she is from a military family and like really has encompassed the idea of American patriotism, but it, it you know it goes to show how that like even the ruling class knows that if we dampen the contradiction between indigenous peoples and, and and the white settler state by pushing patriotism onto them, it's better for us. Us. I agree. <clears throat> Sorry, I agree. You know, and we had somebody come on, a native person come on, and 
oh man, I, I don't know if I want to say it. Yeah, quick question, Deb Holly, <laughs> you know, and, and you know, and, and her, her policy, her votes on policies, I think. Mm-hmm. Not only are we, are we critiquing, you know, white socialists, but we're also critiquing, you know, even like Native people or that are, are supporting these ideas. So I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's not just, you know, it's not about critiquing the Native people, it's really critiquing the white ideology that is capturing, um, you know, or, or is replacing the sense of sovereignty inside indigenous people and replacing it with this idea of American patriotism. It's like convincing them that you're American. And the past like two decades, diversity and inclusion has focused that on the, on the black proletariat as well. Like that was the whole purpose of it. That was the whole purpose of like making Obama president. It's like, all right, you, you guys shouldn't fight for national liberation um, because we're now integrating you into our system, right? Yeah, we acknowledge that we kept you apart from the system for a very long time, but now we're going to start integrating you into the system. And, you know, it's no surprise that Obama became president at the time that he did, because it, 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 like, it reflects the ideological turn the ruling class took uh, when it comes to the question of, uh, of Black nationalism. Like, they wanted to dampen and not foment it. And by dampening it, by in dampening it, they like extend the colonial apparatus into the black proletariat. And of course, like indigenous nations have gone through this much longer too, right? Um, uh, and, and, and I think the military recruiting has been like the primary way, they, way they've done that. So, okay. So you think they, okay. So do you think they recruit native people to to kind of like absorb them into the, the colonial project or do you think because I, I i know the native people have like this like warrior you know like uh culture i'm not making excuses for them to join the military right because i'm anti-military and i think um even though i served and i can tell you i can speak on it you know mm-hmm. but you know um what's your thoughts on that like are they do you think they're because I know a lot, there's a high rate. I think Native people has the highest rates that enlist in the military per capita. Right. You know so, you know, I can't speak on this quote unquote warrior culture that you're talking about. But what I can say is, if that is a thing, why doesn't that translate into national liberation movements? Right. Because yeah. that can, you know, that can apply either way. Why is it specifically going into US military? And I think it's, I mean, so, I mean, I guess there's two things. One is that it's, easiest to recruit like the most uh, oppressed and poorest groups into the US military, that's of course a thing. But I think active recruiting in those regions uh, is purposeful. And, and, and the point of it is to like integrate them and tie them into the US identity. Like think about it, like if you're like, if you're like someone in your community like went and served, um, it, it almost ties, like, not only does it tie that person into the American project, but also it ties everyone around them uh, into the American project. Because, like, but, I mean, I mean, you know, of course, like, all the different ideological things that come in, that come with, like, serving and how people, like, treat service members. Um, so, I mean, my analysis always has been that, you know, the, the indigenous people are highest rate of recruited for the purposes of tying them into the US military. And like, this is the exact same tactic that CPUSA like wants to use, right? 
um, it, it's used from a different class perspective rather than like integrating indigenous peoples into, into the American identity for the purpose of um, destabilizing the global South through wars. They want to integrate the indigenous population into their own movement for the purpose of so socialist, like building a socialist uh, revolution uh, for them, but to, to right, it's like, um, yeah, yeah, they'll always say that it's for all workers, but really they want to use oppressed groups for their own purpose rather than like helping oppressed groups liberate themselves, right? Which which should be the position that American takes. And this and that's the position that Lenin took in his national thesis. You know what? Um, that's a yeah. really that's a really good analysis because you know when you know during my time in the military, uh especially in the army, they would say stupid shit like, you know, we in this, you know, in the army, we are made of so many diverse group of people. You know, we don't see color here. All we see is green, which right. is like the, the military uniform. Mm -hmm. I thought that was fucking stupid, right? <laughs> but um, and I agree. They they do. They they try to you know say, hey, you know, we're the perfect example of what America is. You know, it's diverse. Here we don't see you know color. We see green. This is how it should be. This is how all America should be. Blah blah blah. And you know, I you know, I always. You know, like when I was in, I always thought like, oh, this is like stupid, like ignorant rants. But yeah, this is, you know, you're right. You know, I, I do also want to say that, you know, with your whole uh, comments about Obama, I saw the same thing. Like Biden carried that torch too, even though he's white. Oh, but, absolutely. You know, yeah. but his cabinet was like the most, he was like the most diverse, you know, cabinet ever. I'm like, but you're still imperialist. Right. You know, you're still capitalist. You know, you're yeah. still, you're still, you know, settlers, still settler colonial. Like nothing's changed except you're right. diverse. You know. Yeah, I mean, Canada has its own forms of this. So, uh, like the a, a lot of, I mean, because of partition between like India and Pakistan, a lot of Punj Punjabis like uh, moved into Canada, and they were used for like in cheap factory labor for a very long time. So they were they were like definitely an oppressed minority, kind of like how. Chinese people, when they immigrated here to the U.S., especially in like the West, they were kind of used to like build railroads and, and uh, killed off after. But um, you know, the 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 famous like NDP politician in Canada is Punjabi, like for the same purpose, right? Like he, he's a sick man uh, for for the same purpose. Like they know that this is an 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 ex oppressed group inside Canada, so we're gonna like put their their person up as a leader. Um, and I'm sure like their, uh, his cabinet also has a lot of indigenous people as well. I, I don't know the specific details of Canada, but, you know, the, the sole diversity and inclusion model is, you know, is doing exactly what the American communists want to do by like promoting American patriotism. It's just like from a different class angle, right? But it, I, I, I always phrase it like this, like the American communists, they, they want revolution over reform economy but when it comes to colonialism they want reform over revolution like they want the socialist revolution but with colonialism reform and, and, and that's like the tactic that they use but we need revolution like on all ends right and um like you know if if you know like i cannot imagine the world reaching the stage of like globalized where like socialism becomes hegemonic globally and 
you know, it's like on, and the, and the world is on its path towards communism. Like the U.S. is not going to exist at that point, right? Um, I, I, like, I mean, first of all, states will not exist, like, or states will tend to disappear at that at that time, and um, the U.S. is going to be the first to go because for socialism to happen everywhere everywhere else, like the U.S. has to go. It can't be a thing, and empires collapse. Empires that have existed before, you know, like like the Roman Empire, um, for like the next stage of like the modes of production to exist and, and the next like systems to emerge, like the uh, like the feudal states across like Europe, like the Roman Empire had to collapse, right? Um, for US imperialism to emerge, the British Empire had to collapse. And for socialist hegemony to emerge, US, the US will have to collapse as well. Um, and in some cases, the collapse of an empire like removes it from the existence of history, like like the Roman Empire. Sometimes it transforms into a new thing, right? Like like some parts of the Roman Empire like transformed. Um, and in some cases, like world hegemonic power can turn into a tiny island, like like in the case of like the British, right? So I don't know. I don't see the, the U.S. as a state, as an entity, like existing. And the, the ones who want to preserve and protect it, to me, are just uh, promoting the idea of settler colonialism. And this is why they always say settler colonialism doesn't exist anymore. Because like, in like wanting to preserve the sanctity of the US, it would be- Wait, wait, I have a question. I have a yeah. question. I don't want to interrupt you. No, no, no. But I'm shocked at that comment, right? Wait, the one so, that settler yeah, colonialism doesn't exist? Yeah, I, I am. <laughs> Are, yeah. are socialists saying that? Yeah, yeah. So, oh my God. So, uh, so the the logic that they're using. Um, by the way, this is like this very specific kind of like communist like that that we're discussing t- like today. But their argument is that um, European capitalism had a long process of something called primitive accumulation, which was just you know feudalism in Europe, and the primitive accumulation of, of feudalism like led to capitalism in Europe. Capitalism, they say the capitalism of America did not have this primitive accumulation, which is complete bullshit. So they, they say that settler colonialism was a primitive accumulation of, of the US. Like, so feudalism went into capitalism in Europe and settler colonialism went into capitalism in the US. But settler colonialism is not like a mode of production, right? Um, I, so let, let me read you a passage from this book, which kind of refutes everything that they're saying. Let me, let me quickly grab the book. Okay. So, uh, Torkil Lawson writes in his book called Writing the Way Sweden's Integration into the Imperialist World System. So he writes that, the rise of capitalism in Europe and colonialism are two inseparable phenomena. It was the conquest of the Americas and the looting of Africa and Asia that boosted, the, that boosted the development of capitalism in Europe. The Spanish colonies in Latin America provided the silver and gold that Europe needed so desperately for its growing trade. The European kings, nobility, and church were insatiable for their lust of, for luxury. Following in their footsteps, the growing bourgeoisie and members of the state apparatus also became consumers of more and new kinds of goods. Gold and silver coins were the necessity were the necess- necessary medium for the growing trade. The limited amount of these two metals hampered the circulation of goods. Th- that is why the thirst for gold and silver from the new quote unquote new world was so great. 
Precious metals were looted or mined by slave labor in Mexico and Peru, and were then transported in huge quantities, mainly to Spain. From there, they spread throughout Europe and, and quenched the budding capitalism thirst for a means of exchange. Between 1500 and 1800 uh, years, approximately 100 million kilograms of silver were transported from South America to Europe. The silver coins developed European manufacturing and paid for the imports of goods from Asia at the time. Europe had nothing of interest to Asia except gold and silver. So basically what this writer is saying that is that um, the process of, of colonialism and settler colonialism across the global South and the Americas, and remember, land is also a means of production. So like, while in, in Latin America, like gold and silver is being mined out, like the like land being stolen in Northern America and settled on is also like the same, it's the same process, right? Um, so settler colonialism was rapid accumulation for Europe and the Europeans then all at the same time were settling here. So it's, it's wrong to say that southern colonialism was a mode of production before capitalism in America, as if just like feudalism was before capitalism in Europe, but rather southern colonialism was capitalism in action in, in, in a particular form, just like stealing slaves from Africa is a form of like accumulation, um, like destructively mining gold and silver in like Peru is a form of like accumulation. Settling on land is like a form of accumulation. And, you know, all these processes have grown and morphed into, into new forms, right? The slave trade has morphed into, like, mass incarceration of Black people in the U.S. Um, the looting of gold and silver has transformed into new forms of uh, exploitation of the land. Um, I don't have to name them. Um, and, of course, settler colonialism has transformed into its new ways, right? Um, like, westward, westward expansion was, like, one form of it. And now the next stage of it is like, uh, like border towns being points of con contestation, um, like transnational monopoly, indigenous territory. That's the, like, that is the new form. It's ongoing. It, it's not. It's not a historical stage. It was a process that capitalism used and still uses to today. It's not a pre-capitalist stage like the like some of these, like reactionary uh, socialists who claim to be practitioners of dialectical materialism claim it is i have a question for you yeah so so we know we're, we're critiquing you know these these points of views i don't want people listening to be like oh all they do is critique but offer no solutions so what are your solutions for this what can you know i know we said it a couple of times but you know like just focus you know like just we can put this in this, this little area so people can kind of like a recap you know what I'm saying? Like, what can, you know, non-native, non-black socialists, white socialists, you know, pro-American settler socialists, whatever you want to call them, do to build solidarity with, you know, colonized people in the U.S.? And what does decolonization and revolution simultaneously look like for you and, you know, on this continent? Right. So Marxists, are, so Marxism is a science. It's a science of understanding history, uh, the social contradictions that, that exist in society and across history. And Marxists are revolution, are scientists of revolution. Right? Like they need to approach um, like 
they need to approach history scientifically and in order to change history they need to like apply that same kind of like scientific rigor um so let me let me give you an example of how this is done so the the author of the book i just cited torquil uh, lawson he was part of a small group in 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 uh in sweden or denmark i think that they used to rob banks like systematically rob banks and so i mean they also organized in legal ways too but their illegal forms of organizing was robbing banks and sending those like that money to the pflp the palestinian liberation movement the communist palestinian liberation movement liberation movements in yemen helping them buy arms he ended up going to prison but of course the scandinavian prison system is you know it's very different like the maximum sentence in norway for example is like 21 years but you know i'm not saying go rob banks and like arm liberation movements that's what i'm saying like the point i want to make here is he tells the story of how like how and why they decided the strategy that they did he said he had a group of 25 uh you know organizers they all studied together they all learned marxism together and they like you know their job like 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 any communist in history their job was to kind of study the conditions right now find the weak points of capitalism and like hit those weak points directly so for them um being in like the scandinavian straight states where quote unquote uh democratic socialism is like implemented um they found like no revolutionary uh like forces inside the working people there and this is like in the in the 80s right it's different now where there are a lot more immigrants in scandinavia and the conditions are different but like scan this the height of like things for social democracy in in scandinavia was during that time so you know they they understood us imperialism to be the primary enemy and that um you know national liberation movements are very imperative for the weakening of us imperial uh, us imperialism and so there are a lot of national liberation movements going on they looked at all of them they saw that some of the major ones had a lot of support either from other nation states or other groups um but then they 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 theorize that there are some smaller national liberation movements that are very important but they 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 didn't have the support that they needed so they they summarized those to be the national liberation movements in Yemen and in Palestine which is, and so they decided to organize specifically towards that right like there were like in there were in the middle of so, democratic socialism in Scandinavia in the 80s everyone's like living really well no one wants to like overthrow the system they knew imperialism has to go so they they target these these specific groups and help them materially you know by like robbing the richness robbing from the richness of of scandinavia and, and rediverting that wealth to towards liberation movements um so again i'm not saying do that what i'm saying is like that process that mechanism of like stepping back getting the bigger picture understanding what the main enemy is which is us imperialism understanding what his weak spots are the weak spots inside the us in my opinion would be um a, a re, like a potential weak spot would be a, a reinvigorated black liberation movement and a reinvigorated like national sovereignty movement for indigenous nations like that would really be bad for for like the, the ruling class in the us um the other major like contradiction inside the us is the struggle between the failure of neoliberalism and cuz you know neoliberalism like eroded the welfare state it like uh created international links of trade um 
And like that's kind of falling apart, right? Like the international globalized capitalist system is falling apart. And this is why like the rise of Trump like happens. Trump is a nationalist. He uh, like he's supported by capitalists who make their money within the US while the neoliberals are supported by capitalists who make their money through like international supply chain, international trading. So like Trump is totally for cutting off the international trade, um, you know, which you, you saw with his, his quote unquote trade deals and like reinvigorating an internal like nationalist economy. For example, like he wants to move factories back to the US. Um, and in doing that, like that would decrease, like that would cause workers to like make less money, right? Because Apple would have to move low wage labor from like Asia into the US. Um, so how do they do that without losing money? You have to drop the wages. But so this is another like point of weakness. Like capitalists want to make more and more money. Neoliberalism is failing. Um, so uh, like what something has to give, right? Like either they like give concessions to to workers or they like you know, break, like new, as neoliberalism breaks breaks down, the right wing comes into power and they nationalize their 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 uh, economy, um, or or work towards more of a national economy rather than an international economy. So this is like another weakness, right? Like, so Marxists need to understand how this how this particular weak point and how the weak points of you know the struggle between the the settler state and and indigenous and black peoples can be like antagonized. If you can antagonize those struggles in legal or legal ways, you can like help cause more internal problems for the, for the US imperialists. And this is what the Black Panther Party did. They caused hella problems for the US imperialists. And the, like, the anti-war movement like, uh, against the Vietnam War would not have been possible if like, these anti-imperialist communists were not growing so fast inside, inside the US, right? Like, CPUSA was not able to create an anti-war movement in a way that like the rising forces of like black nationalism were able to like between MLK and Malcolm X, like late MLK, late Malcolm X and early Panthers, like they were able to foment these kinds of, uh, these kinds of ideas. So, you know, so, you know, like I said, if you're a Marxist, look at the world scientifically, like don't be dogmatic. Uh, patriotism is not going to work. Yeah, you like, like, so the thing is like, the US is so anti-communist and so anti-socialist. If you even manage to manage to convince them towards socialism, like, it's one more step to convince them against the US. Like, those two things go hand in hand. Like, those workers aren't idiots, right? Like, if you manage to tell them that communism is good and their idea of anti-communism is tied to pro-America, pro like if you if you went that far, you can also get them to be pro, like anti-America. And what I see, so like to answer your question on, on like how I see like revolution playing out, like if these national liberation movements are fomented inside the U.S., like you know, like they were in the '70s, um, it'll, it'll it'll make things better for the third world. And um, and the way the way revolution happens, like the revolution against US imperialism has two forms, internal and external. And I, I described the internal form. The way it happens externally is for the global South to link with each other, develop trade with each other, uh, create conditions for them to de-link from the international supply chains of the US. And that's what China is doing with the Belt and Road Initiative, right? Like it's creating the conditions necessary for countries to uh, trade with each other 
and completely remove their reliance from, from the US. And that's what creates the conditions for the weakening of the US imperialism from the outside. We just have to do the job from the inside. Um, and it's going to start with, uh, with, with national liberation movements, definitely. Thank you. That's really good. And that this is a topic that, you know, I wanted to, I have always been talking about it during shows, you know, the whole dogmatic side of American socialists, you know, and my frustration with them. Um, yeah, but uh, can you give us, are we done or do you want to, you know, like keep going? Well, I, I thought that was a good place to end, but if you have another okay. question, I'm happy to answer it. No, yes. Yeah, my, my last question would be like, where can we find your work and um, yeah. Right, um, I, you know, I think you can probably add these to the show notes, but you can find some of my writing on uh, shattering hegemony, that wordpress.org. Um, you can find my collective's writings at uh, pa-cp.org, which is the People's Anti-Colonial Press. And finally, you can find me on Twitter at, at 19, my name, Hassan, 49. Thank you for that. And um, thank you for this recording. It's very refreshing, you know, to hear, you know, these, these, these thoughts coming from you and um, that I wasn't, you know, just insane, going insane in my own head with, you know, the same thoughts. Um, well, um, well, thank you. Yeah, no problem. And, and, you know, I hope like this helps you know, the, the listeners and like kind of conceptualizing, you know, what the problems of the world are right now, but also helps them understand what the method of Marxism actually is, right? The method of Marxism is not just to take Marxism idea of socialism and, and like plant it everywhere. The method of Marxism is how Lenin and Mao used it. They like use it to study their world find the points of weaknesses and use those points of weaknesses to change it into their favor and and the direction of favor that they're going towards is socialism right but you're also not going to jump into socialism you're not going to you're not going to jump into communism you're going to like take it one step at a time and scientifically move history towards that direction and that's what marxism is all about